other as well. He's having surgery on Thursday. He's having, uh, as you know, he did some bad damage to his neck, so he's having surgery on his neck on Thursday. Uh, Father, we pray that you'll be with our, our little brother, Toby, and please calm his fears, and we pray that the surgery will go very well this Thursday. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by talking about fear. Fear can be a terrible thing, can't it? It can cause, can suck away our joy. It can cause a loss of sleep, loss of appetite. It creates that horrible, gnawing sense of anxiety. Fear can cause us to, to anger, to be distracted from what we're supposed to be doing. It can cause depression. And we are talking this morning about the fear of hurt, the fear of being rejected, the fear of losing a job, the fear of losing friends, the fear of losing property, the fear of losing our reputation and our good name, the fear of missing out, fear of the future. Fear can make us do bad things. It can make us compromise. It can make us hurt those that we should not be hurting, it can make us not hurt those that we perhaps need to be hurting and withdrawing from. It can make us neglect our responsibilities. Fear can make us tell lies. It can make us break loyalties that should not be broken. Fear can cause us to give up on our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. How can we be freed from fear, fear that debilitates us, fear that can crush us, fear that can even threaten our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we are freed from fear when we listen to what the Apostle John is saying here in Revelation chapter 1, when we see the vision that he saw. And this morning we're going to see a vision going to see a remarkable vision. We're going to see this vision through the eyes of John. We're going to hear this vision, as it were, through the ears of John. Look with me, please, and I'd, I'd, I really want you to have your Bibles open this morning, every, every time we teach, but especially this morning. Please have it open on your laps so that you can follow along, so that you can see what is being taught, so that you can evaluate what's being taught to see whether it is true to the Word of God. And we're in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, where I, John says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And the island of Patmos, you can visit Patmos today. It's a, apparently a two-hour ferry ride from Turkey. It's a, a, a craggy, volcanic island, about 12 kilometres long, about six kilometres wide. And the Apostle John had been exiled by the authorities to Patmos, separated from friends, 
family, separated from the church. And here he is on the island of Patmos in exile. And he says, he writes to his churches in Asia Minor, I am your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Please take that on board. Listen to the way John describes Christian fellowship and Christian life. If you're a Christian, suffering is yours. If you're a Christian, the kingdom is yours. If you're a Christian, patient endurance has to be yours. Because to be a Christian is to face suffering. And the word suffering there, it literally meant pressure. Think of some, something being squeezed. Think of a great weight pressing down. This is the word that John uses to describe suffering. And we know that the, the Christians at this time were suffering. They were losing family members because they were becoming Christians. They were losing their income. They were losing job opportunities. Some were being fired for their jobs because they could no longer work for the state. The Roman government, by the way, had a, a kind of very ecumenical spirit towards other religions. When Rome conquered you, they didn't mind if you kept on with your previous religion as long as you said that Caesar is my number one loyalty and Caesar is Lord. You could be a Jew, you could worship Zeus, you could worship Baal, you could worship a lump of wood. Rome didn't care as long as you put Caesar at the top and made your primary loyalty to Rome and to the emperor. And the way you had to prove this was by coming from time to time to a, a Roman temple, a state temple, where you would burn a bit of incense and say in front of a government official, Caesar is Lord. And that proved your loyalty to Rome and to the emperor. And Christians couldn't do this. They couldn't say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will obey Caesar in everything except when Caesar tells us to do something that is against our primary Lord. And so Christians were suffering. And Christians who refused to take this oath were being imprisoned and executed and many crucified, many fed to the wild beasts of the Roman arenas for the entertainment of the crowd. This is the kind of pressure that was bearing down on the church. And Paul says, Paul, not Paul, John says, John says, that if you are a Christian, then you are a companion of suffering, a companion of the kingdom, and a companion of patient endurance. You're going to have to have patient endurance if you're going to be a Christian. And so here's John. Picture him on this craggy volcanic island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. 
And it's the Lord's Day. What's the Lord's Day? Well, it's the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And what day of the week was that? It's a Sunday, the first day of the week. And that's why Christians, right from the beginning, have gathered not on the Sabbath day, the last day of the week, but on the Lord's Day. It's why we're gathered here today on the Lord's Day. It's the new day for God's people to assemble and to worship. And so here's John. It's the Lord's Day. And he's worshipping the Lord. And he is in the Spirit, he says. And this reminds us of the, the prophet Ezekiel. The Spirit falling on him and showing him remarkable things. And so John is in the Spirit and he hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. So, so there, there's John worshipping. And then a, a trumpet blast voice from behind him, and this is what this, and by the way, in the Old Testament, when the trumpet blew, when the priests blew the trumpets, that was the sign. Come, gather into the presence of God. Come and meet with God. And that's exactly what is about to happen here. The trumpet sounds, and he hears this tremendous voice behind him, which says, write on a scroll what you see. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches in the region of Asia Minor forming, and if you were to track those, those seven cities, it makes a rough circle in a clockwise direction. And so the letter was to be sent to these churches and sent between them and read out in each of them. And so John hears this tremendous voice behind him, write what you're about to see, and he turns around, as you would, to see the voice that was speaking, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say it as he says it, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. Now, the pedants among you are saying, how can you turn around and see a voice Come on, admit it. <laughs> Who are the pedantics here? Okay, so how can you see a voice? Well, that's what it is in the original language. He turned around, obviously, to, to, to see the one who was speaking. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. He's just been told about seven churches, and now he sees seven golden lampstands. And we're going to see at the end of John chapter 1 that these seven lampstands symbolize those seven churches. And what a beautiful symbol for a church. A church is to be a lampstand, it is to shine, it's to be bright, it's to shed light and truth all around it. And so John sees these churches symbolized in these seven lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like a son of man. And last week, we looked at who this Son of Man is. This God-man, described in the prophet Daniel in chapter 7, coming on the clouds of heaven, approaching the Ancient of Days, being led into his presence and being given all glory, power, honour, authority, worship from all peoples and all nations. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. 
When Jesus spoke about himself, what was his favourite designation of himself? What did he most commonly refer to himself as? As the Son of Man. The divine Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in Daniel 7. And so John turns around to see this tremendous voice and he sees the seven churches symbolised by these seven lampstands. And where is Jesus Christ? Is he on a throne in heaven, looking down from a great distance and seeing his churches? I can see my churches down there. I can see what's going on. Well, he is on a throne and he can see what's going on in his churches. But John sees Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, not watching from a distance, not watching through binoculars to see what's going on with his people, but he's actually, where? Among the lampstands. As it were, walking among the seven churches, the seven lampstands, like a priest walking among the the lamps in the temple, tending them, putting oil in them, changing the wicks, making sure that the light doesn't go out. There's Jesus Christ among the lampstands, among his churches. Now, that, that, that in itself, isn't that a tremendous comfort to those who are facing fear, those who are facing persecution? The first thing Jesus tells them is, I'm right there with you. I'm among you. I'm walking close to you. I am next to you. And if you are suffering, and if you are afraid, Jesus is saying, I am there. I'm with you. I'm not noticing things from a distance. I am present. Know that. Tremendous comfort when we believe that. Now John tells us what the Son of Man looks like. And this is uh, fabulous and amazing, extraordinary. He describes him with, seven, with, with eight symbols. The Son of Man described with eight symbols. Each of these symbols is drawn from the Old Testament. Each of them teaching us a precious truth about the Son of Man Jesus Christ. Because we want to know, well, well, yeah, Jesus is among us, but what's he like? What's he like? How should I think of him? Well, let's look at these eight symbols. First of all, we see that he is dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And this is Old Testament language to describe what kind of a person... The only people who wore robes down to their feet were rich or, and or important people, kings. But here we're talking about priests. The priests wore these long robes with a sash around their chest. And the first thing we see about Jesus is that he is our priest. That means... He is between us and God. He speaks to us on God's behalf and he lifts up prayers to God 
on our behalf. Turn with me to, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There we have, in Revelation chapter 1, the first symbol of Jesus. He is your priest. He is pleading to God on your behalf. And his pleas and prayers will be heard. And they are perfect prayers because he knows you. And he knows the temptations you are facing. He experienced them too, yet without sin. He knows exactly what you need and he is praying to the Father on your behalf. That's the first thing you need to know as you face fear and uncertainty. Jesus is your great priest among you, praying to God on your behalf, never ceasing to pray. Right now he's praying for you. While you sleep, he is praying for you. In your anxiety and your worry, he is praying for you never stops praying for you, even when he walked this earth. When it was still dark every morning and everyone's asleep, he was up, out there, praying for his people. Never stopped. And he never, and he's doing it right now. Never forget that. And look at the second symbol. The hair on his head was white like wool as white as snow. And your hairdresser will tell you that as you get old, the pigment cells in your hair follicles start to die. And so there's less pigment going, on, going into your hair, less melanin, I think they call it, less colour is the bottom line. And so your hair takes on a translucent appearance. Translucent sounds a bit better than grey, doesn't it? but it's grey, or you might prefer silver, white, it doesn't matter. As you get older, that's the colour your hair goes. And it's not a disaster, necessarily, because in the Bible, white hair, grey hair is a sign of age and the wisdom that should come with age. The wisdom that should come with having gone around the sun a few more times than others. And so here, the second symbol of Jesus is he is symbolised with hair that is white like wool, symbolising his wisdom. He is a wise God. He only ever makes the right and perfect decisions. So there he is among his churches, among his people, deciding for them, choosing them for them, directing their future, and he does it with perfect wisdom. That's the second symbol. The third, his eyes were like blazing fire. 
His eyes were like blazing fire. And what does that mean? It means that he has eyes that pierce every heart, every mind. He sees everything. He knows everything. Put those two symbols together. There are some people who know an awful lot, but they're not very wise. And so their great knowledge becomes a a kind of weapon that they use to hurt others instead of helping others. And on the contrary, there are those who might have great intelligence, but they've not had the opportunity to learn much or to know much. And so their wisdom and their intelligence can't be used effectively or as well as it could be. But with our Lord Jesus, a picture here of perfect wisdom with his grey hair and coupled with perfect knowledge and understanding, he sees and knows everything. And that means Jesus Christ, who is close to you, who is Lord over your present and your future, has perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom. He will make a perfect decision. And, and this, you know, as you are being dragged to the temple to burn incense to Caesar, and you know you're not going to do it, and you know what's going to happen to you afterwards, that's vital. That's vital that you know that he knows that and he sees it and he saw it right from the start and he knew it was going to happen and he knows what's going to happen and it is a perfect plan. Painful, awful, terrifying on the face of it and yet our God of perfect understanding, knowledge and wisdom has planned that course for you. None of you are going to be dragged before a magistrate this week or dragged to an awful death. But there are many other hard things happening to you. And you need to know that your God, Jesus Christ, he knows and he's perfectly wise and not a single step of that is outside of his perfect plan for you. You need to know that. You need to draw Comfort and confidence from that, that will help banish fear. Let's look at the fourth symbol. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Aren't these extraordinary pictures? And what's this telling us? Think of the statue in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar saw. That statue representing world rule. The head of the statue was made of what? Gold, representing Babylon. The arms and the torso were made of silver, representing the Medo-Persian Empire. The the belly and the thighs were made of bronze, representing the Greek Empire. And then it had uh, legs of iron, representing earthly empires ever since. The feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. Iron, so, so all this worldly might and pomp and splendour 
on feet of clay. Fragile. One empire passing after another. Empires coming and going. Is Jesus' rule like that? Is his kingdom like that? He doesn't have feet of clay, brothers and sisters. He has feet of burnished bronze. Bronze with all the impurities removed. Strong, firm. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, says Daniel chapter 7. His kingdom will never pass away. With Jesus, you have not linked yourself to a power or a kingdom that's going to pass away like the rest. You have linked yourself to an eternal dominion and kingdom. That's the, the fourth symbol. The fifth symbol, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I'm told that in Perth on the 27th of August in 1883, at about 10 o'clock in the morning, that the people of Perth heard a strange sound coming from the northwest. And it sounded like a distant cannons going off. Do you know what that was? Do you know what that sound was? It was Krakatoa erupting in the Indian Ocean, up in Indonesia. And it was such a tremendous explosion that it was heard 2,000 miles away in the city of Perth. A tremendous noise and the scientists say that the pressure waves circled the earth four times that's how loud they, they say it's probably possibly the largest noise ever heard on earth that mums it's not your two-year-old your three-year-old it's Krakatoa although your two-year-old is doing his best to rival that I know and here the voice of Jesus like rushing waters it's a loud voice. That's the point of it. It's a loud voice and it is a powerful voice, meaning that when he speaks, things happen. When he makes a promise, that promise will be kept. And so when he says to the suffering church, surely I'm with you to the very end of the age, that's a promise he will keep the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And we read at the, the end of Revelation 1 that these stars are the angels of the church. And I, I, I'm just going to tell you now that the scholars have been fighting over this for 2,000 years and they just cannot agree. They can't agree what these... What does that mean? Seven stars, the angels of the church. Does it mean the guardian angels of the church? The word angel, the basic meaning is, is the word messenger. Does it talk, is it talking about the messengers of the church, the pastors of the church, for example? What's it talking about? No one can really agree. But I think at the very least, it's talking about the message that has been imparted to the church. At the very least, Jesus is holding that in his right hand. He's making sure that each of his churches is receiving the truth the true message of the gospel and salvation. Be comforted by that as you face trials and persecution. We'll return to those seven stars more carefully next week. And the seventh symbol, 
out of his mouth a sharp, double-edged sword. This wasn't talking about the Romans. The Roman soldiers used little short swords, stabbing swords. This is talking about a long, sharp, heavy, slashing kind of sword. And it's coming out of the mouth of Jesus. And what's that symbolising? It's symbolising the power of his words, but also that he will come and bring words of judgment. He will judge. He will set everything right with his perfect and powerful judgments. And so as Christians faced pressure, suffering and persecution, they could know that Jesus was going to come with the, the sword of his mouth and it, Revelation comes back to it twice more to bring perfect judgment and justice. No Christian at the end of time will look back and say he has not treated me fairly or justice has not been carried out. He will bring perfect justice at the perfect time. And finally, the eighth symbol. His face was shining like the sun in all its brilliance. Mum and Dad always said, don't look at the sun. Don't look at the sun. And so what do you do? And what do you find? It hurts. It hurts to look at In fact, I, I, I met a guy. Funnily enough, I went lawn bowling with him who looked at the sun when he was a child, so he was legally blind. And he beat me at lawn bowls. <laughs> the sun, it hurts. You can't, it's, it's too intense, it's too powerful. And so what we have here is our Lord Jesus Christ, in all his power and holiness. It's unbearable to look at him. Unbearable holiness is being described here with this face shining brighter than the sun. Well, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet. I fell at his feet as though dead. And that's right, isn't it? That's right. That's what it should be. John saw Jesus as he is, symbolised with those eight tremendous symbols. He saw all that Jesus is and he just fell at his feet as though dead. In other words, overwhelmed with fear. Overwhelmed with fear and terror and he's driven to his knees and he's face down in the dirt because he can't bear to look at the Son of Man in all his glory. And I hope, I hope with all my heart that you've seen something of that in Jesus Christ. You know, because we, we grow up and we read our children's Bibles and we sing our cute songs. And we've all got this idea of who Jesus is or who we want him to be. 
But when we see him as he is, he is fearsome, his power and glory and holiness. And if you see him, all you can do is fall down on your face before him. The person who sees Christ sees that. And, 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 and this is a little aside, but I, I long for our gatherings to reflect that. I really do. I long for our gatherings to reflect this idea that we are seeing something of Christ and we are awestruck by that and filled with marvel and awe and wonder. And the Apostle Paul says that, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 14? I'm, I'm off track here, but bear with me. 1 Corinthians 14, doesn't he say that when an unbeliever comes into your presence, what should be their response? Should it be, well, I'm definitely coming back there because the, the, the coffee's much better there than that other place, or the music is, is so much nicer here or, or whatever. Paul says that they should fall on their face and say, surely God is among you. That's the way it should be. We should see Christ in the reading of his word, the teaching of his word, as we sing praises to him, as we pray to him, see him and fall down in fear and awe. Now, I, I want to bring this to a close. And I want to bring it to a close this way. Can you see, can you see that, that, that here... Here are these churches, and they are frightened. They're frightened, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to lose my friends, I'm going to lose my income, I'm going to be dragged before the magistrate, I'm going to be dragged before a crowd and, and, and crucified or fed to wild animals. Here are these churches, and they are afraid. And Jesus Christ shows himself to these churches in this apocalyptic vision, the curtain is pulled aside, and they can see Jesus Christ and what, what do you see? You see, this is the one to fear. He's the one you should be frightened of. He's the one who should fill you with awe. Never mind your boss who might give you a hard time at work. Mind the one with eyes of blazing fire. Never mind that magistrate who can arrest you and put you in prison. Mind the one whose face is, is so glorious and holy that it's brighter than the sun. Never mind a government that may oppress you with its power. Mind the one who with feet of burnished bronze whose kingdom will never pass away. Here's the one to fear. This is the one to fear. And when you see that and you see him and you learn to fear him, then all other fear is banished. How can I, how can I possibly be frightened? How can I be frightened of a rat when there's a lion standing behind the rat, right? And that's what's going on here. And Jesus is showing your fear is misplaced. Look at me. Look at me. But then he placed his right hand on me, said John. And he said, do not be afraid. 
Do not be afraid. I love that, the right hand on John. It's a sign of love, intimacy, and the impartation of strength. I remember when I was ordained, the age of 31, had all these elders kneeling, on, kneeling at the front of the church, and all these elders around me. Uh, a friend told me, you couldn't see me. And they had their hands on me. And, and, and there is that, that feeling of strength that comes when someone puts their hand on your shoulder. And the hand of Christ is on John. And he's saying, don't fear. Don't fear. Don't fear the world and your friends and your boss and those on campus and the schoolyard because Jesus Christ is far more glorious and powerful than all. But don't fear him either because he is on your side. The, the only one to fear is on your side. And don't fear, so don't fear for the future. Don't fear for the now. Because the great and glorious Son of God is on your side. He is with you, close to you. And all those glorious attributes that Revelation 1 describes are there to help you, to serve you. So I'm going to stop there. Going a bit slower than what I hoped through Revelation, but we'll finish chapter 1 next week. There's some tremendous symbols that we haven't yet got to in the end of chapter 1. Let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you've shown yourself to us this morning. You've revealed yourself. You've pulled aside the curtain and we've seen you. And forgive us for when we have feared earthly things, earthly people. We see that you're the only one to fear. And yet you say don't fear. Because all your power, holiness, strength, dominion and rule is being exercised for our good. And we thank you for that. And I pray that this week, I pray for our children. I pray for our teenagers. I pray for our young adults. I pray for the mums here, dads, those in the workplace. I pray for the elderly. I pray for those who are sick. I pray that you will banish our fears of human beings and earthly things. Because we know that you are with us and you are carrying us. And we thank you and praise you for that. And we glorify your name. Amen. Thanks, musicians.